Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. The impact of climate change on health systems and health outcomes necessitates a global, whole society shift towards a preventative health model. A holistic approach is needed across healthcare decision making, policy formation, governance, structures, and systems to address the widespread health impacts of climate change. I'm joined by Dynamics Brian Hummel, Oliver May, and special guest Rosanna Velicott to discuss climate change's impact on healthcare, the primary forces driving it, and how the model of care delivery must shift as a result. Welcome back, Ryan and Ali, and first time welcome to Rosanna. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Jen. I'm really looking forward to getting into this conversation. I think it is so important. Ali, I'm certain that our listeners are familiar with the concepts of climate change in their day-to-day lives, but can you provide some clarity around how it intersects with health and healthcare? The convergence of climate change and healthcare is becoming increasingly evident. The interconnect, uh, I think, is accepted now broadly. And the impacts that climate change is having on our public health and also on our broader healthcare systems. So just to level set, we're talking about anthropogenic climate change here. So that's climate change that's driven by human activities. So we're talking about the burning of fossil fuels and deforestation, industrial processes and these release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and as i'm sure most of our listeners will know this leads to global warming and a range of environmental changes including more frequent and intense weather events the reason we want to discuss this today is the world health organization has designated this as the top risk to global healthcare in the 21st century The latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report was released in March 2023, and it identified five key links between climate change and health. So the first that we've got is the greater spread of diseases. We've got increasingly poor air quality. Climate is affecting mental health. Water and food scarcity is contributing to malnutrition and and greater disease. And finally, the displacement and migration is putting people at risk. Thank you, Rosanna, and also thank you, Ali, for providing kind of a macro and micro level overview of what we're going to talk about today. And if I could put some context to some of the points you made today, half the global population contends with some severe water scarcity for at least one month per year. And to put that in perspective, that's 2.7 billion people in the globe. If you combine that scarcity with more frequent and severe weather events and We're seeing it live, you know, intense heat waves, wildfires, floods, famine. These cause really acute human emergencies and immediate loss of life. But there's grander scale things that happen as a result of this that leads to displacement and migration that is, like I said, driven by famine, driven by drought and climate factors. And population movement is not something we talk about as a health issue, but it's very real. And mass migration already in the past decade has led to challenge across almost every continent. Yeah, listening to those five main impacts from that intergovernmental panel on climate change, they're very stark. And Ryan, I'm a bit concerned. You're talking about migration and movement and the spread of disease. And obviously coming where we are now recently starting to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, thinking about the spread of disease across the globe is 
very top of mind, even outside of the impact of climate change. Can you take us a little bit deeper into how we're seeing the spread of disease really be exacerbated by climate change, Ryan? You think about pandemics, and if you talk to any scientist, they will tell you that we are due for pandemics in the near and far future. And if you think about people crowding together and migrating, just kind of the common thought of that may lead to more issues with pandemics and climate change is increasing the spread of even more acute insect-borne and fungal-borne diseases across the world, which we don't always think about that as a top of mind. You think about that as malaria in the 70s and 80s, or you think about that in the past. These are real things that are many times neglected during the conversation around increasing and improving the health of our society. There is an emergence of what is called valley fever, which is a fungal spread disease that is pretty prevalent in the southwestern United States and even up to the Pacific Northwest. Valley fever is contracted by inhaling these spores present in soil. And if you look at recent publications or you Google valley fever, it is growing in large part due to rising global temperatures. Also, if you look at the temperatures across just the United States, the range of valley fever could spread east through the Great Plains and north where temperatures are rising even to the Canadian border. And I think it's something that we should be opening our eyes to and talking about in the lens of healthcare today. It's alarming to see that predicted change in geography of valley fever, Ryan. We've got, as you said, Arizona and California at the moment is where it's really concentrated. But by the end of the century, it could be spread to almost half of America. And our listeners may not have heard of valley fever before. Around 10% of people who contract it develop serious or long-term lung problems. And around 1% have a more severe experience, and some do lead to death in the US. I think on the topic of valley fever, what's really interesting and important for us to understand is what are the causal pathways at play? So thinking of those studies, the lab analysis looks at the effects of heat stress on another disease-causing fungus, and it concluded that higher heat conditions on the planet may be speeding up genetic mutations in the fungi. And it's these genetic changes that allow the fungi to have greater heat resistance, greater disease causing potential. So it's the causal pathway that's really interesting. As the world warms, the transpersoons in the soil fungi could become more mobile and increase genomic changes in ways that would enhance the virulence and drug resistance. Rosanna, there's only a finite amount of things we can prioritize. So we have to really think about recognizing that this is a real issue and figuring out treatment approaches. And the good news is there have been some researchers at the University of Arizona in their College of Medicine that have created a two-dose vaccine that actually been proven to be very effective in dogs. So we have some early stage effectiveness when it comes to vaccines for this, but we're filling the bag quickly of issues when it comes to climate change maladies. It's interesting, Ryan, when you talk about priorities and there's only so much that healthcare systems can focus on. And I think here we're adding to the burden in this example of providers outside of Arizona, California that don't currently deal with this disease. And then also there's obviously many scientists that are focused on providing a vaccine for this as well. And in the UK, one of our key policy responses to the increased spread of diseases is also vaccine development. And in the news this week, we've had the government set up a vaccine development and evaluation center. This is in Wiltshire, 
And it's very public because they are working towards a 100-day mission. So they want to deploy vaccines within three months of the virus being detected in humans. And relating back to what Jen mentioned at the top as well, this is all about we know that there are going to be new viruses from climate change and from deforestation and urbanization. How can we ensure that we can react quickly? This new evaluation center is the first in the world that has the capacity to carry out every single stage of vaccine development, from isolating harmful pathogens to conducting clinical trials, and then it's linked in with producing the vaccine en masse as well. So scientists are going to be able to test thousands or tens of thousands of treatments at the same time alongside some of the existing drugs. I think this vaccine development center that you touched on is really, really exciting. It's a health system wide approach. And that's something that we're really looking for when thinking about how climate change is impacting health globally and locally. The site itself is operating in partnership with UK universities, the pharmaceutical industry, and even global health organizations. And as you said, we've got so many scientists, there are 200 scientists working to create libraries of prototype vaccines with a focus on viruses that are most likely to cause pandemics. It is this kind of joined up partnership approach, which contributes to kind of health system preparedness when we're thinking about the impacts of climate change. I think that aspect of preparedness is so key, right? I think preparedness in terms of providers being able to recognize these spreading diseases and get the proper education and training so they know how to see the symptoms, treat, et cetera. When in the case of Valley Fever, a disease that might not have been in their geography before, and then preparedness of the system to be able to respond rapidly because we know with the effects of climate change, we anticipate spreading of diseases to new geographies and proliferation of newer diseases that might require vaccines to prevent them. So being able to be ready and have that thinking is really positive. I want to go into one of the other factors, Rosanna, that you had mentioned in the report about the impact of climate change on healthcare, and that is around air pollution. Could you tell me a little bit more about what we're seeing in the research there? The topic of air pollution is, is really interesting because a lot of research is focused on the lungs, but as public health bodies and researchers are starting to focus on other health impacts, we're looking at concerns around cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, even reproductive impacts. Today, what I want us to talk about and really focus on is how air pollution is impacting childhood behavioral problems with research even looking at IQ as well. This study looked at prenatal and postnatal exposure to air pollution that can then harm the children once they're born. So this found that children whose mothers experienced higher nitrogen dioxide exposure during pregnancy, particularly in the first and second trimester, were more likely to have behavioral problems. And then building on that, researchers also found that exposure to small particle air pollution in children who are between two and four was associated with poorer child behavioral functioning and cognitive performance. It reinforces something that we already know. You think about the vulnerability of children to air pollution, and most people know that that's when organs are being developed, both in utero and then also as children are in the developing stages of their lives. And major organ development is 
compromised with this air pollution. And if you think about the plethora of hospitals, trusts, and healthcare systems and institutions that are supplanted in both urban areas that are susceptible to air pollution, probably more than rural areas or even the suburbs, it's really important that these leaders consider investing in more knowledge capabilities around air pollution and technologies to manage health impacts of an air pollution. I think that's a new way of thinking. I think you asked me a few weeks ago if if U.S. health systems are thinking about air pollution and what they can do to, to stop it. I would argue that I don't think it's a high priority, but when you listen to the study by the University of Washington or you hear these stories of valley fever or you listen to the prevalence of poor air quality, and if we have a chance, we'll talk a little bit about the air quality index. It's really important and incumbent on stakeholders within health systems to prioritize this and understand and push for policies and plans to reduce air pollution, particularly in these densely populated areas. And in those densely populated areas, I think the challenge for the leaders of these hospitals and these providers is going to be, where do you put your investment? We know how challenged they are in in Europe and in the US currently with all of the demographic changes, funding changes that are happening. But do you invest into addressing air pollution and the cause? Or do you, as a someone running a hospital, do you just invest into dealing with the impacts of air pollution, whether that's on the lungs or as we've looked at in this study, on the development of children? And does it make sense for, for healthcare systems to have to pick up this huge burden and invest in dealing with these new impacts that we're seeing? That is a, an existential crisis that I think does not have a clear-cut answer. Health systems and hospitals have not always been traditionally good at going upstream to address causes and instead have really focused on treating and dealing with the impacts. In order for us to move forward as a society, I think we all need to move upstream in these issues and think about how do we prevent them from happening in the first place. And I think you can have a two-pronged approach where you build capabilities to treat some of these newer, more severe issues with air pollution, but there's also some smaller things you can do. And I mentioned earlier this idea of air quality index, which is a newer study that it's basically a thermometer between zero and 500 based on the amount of pollution in the air. And it's on every app that anyone with a smartphone has, or they talk about it on the news. And basically there's parameters where it's safe or not safe to breathe or to exercise outside. And it's actually heartbreaking to hear that we're talking about this because many days it is a dangerous situation based on recent forest fires that have affected the Northeast or even air pollution in general. And I think that something like if you have comorbidities or if you have asthma or if you have COPD already, stay indoors in a filtered air condition or seek shelter that could prevent any kind of acute air pollution-laden event to happen. Those are some quick wins that we can push on and market to a society that has learned about this recently. Anyway, Ali, we could talk all day about bigger picture things, but there are some quick wins. I think the health systems and hospitals and even health plans and other sectors of the healthcare spectrum could invest in. Yeah, right. I think it's a matter of being able to see where we are now, where we're really feeling the effects and look at how do we prepare our health systems to be able to deal with the effects? How do our public health agencies start to prevent or work in in concert with governments and industry to prevent some of the causes of climate change and also educate the general population around things like air quality that we haven't had to contend with or haven't been aware of historically. I know personally, 
having to talk with my daycare and understand how does the air quality index impact whether or not my son will be able to play outside. I think we're feeling these impacts and the younger generations are really feeling the impacts as climate change might have been something, Ryan, you and I were educated on in school, but they're living out the impacts every day. And I think it has a really tangible impact on not only their physical health, but their mental health as well. The mental health aspect is really interesting. We often look at what are the kind of physical components or the physical effects of climate change and how is that impacting health rather than that kind of mental health element. And over the past few years, there has been research emerging from the US and the EU in particular that's looking at a phenomenon called climate anxiety or eco-anxiety. This is something that's really prevalent in children and young people. A lot of people might not know what climate anxiety or eco-anxiety actually is. Fundamentally, it's distress about climate change and its impacts, so both on the landscape and on human existence. It can manifest as intrusive thoughts or feelings of distress about future disasters or the long-term future of human existence in the world. But beyond what's driving the distress, it's got this kind of physiological and behavioral component. So from the physiological side, it's that heart racing, shortness of breath that we might be familiar with in anxiety. But on the behavioral component, it's about climate anxiety getting in the way of your normal social relationships or work or at school. And recently, the Lancet published a study that was looking at climate anxiety in children and young people. And beyond just climate anxiety, it was looking for a link between that and beliefs about government responses to climate change. The study looked at 10,000 children and young people in 10 countries scattered across the world. So really a global study. Some of the key takeaways that really stood out to me was that the respondents across all the countries were worried about climate change. So 59% of those children were either very or extremely worried, and 80% were at least moderately worried. Another 45% of respondents said their feelings about climate change were negatively affecting their daily life and functioning. I think when we're thinking about our children growing up in this changing world, that's really shocking. And then as you mentioned, Rosanna, at the end, the respondents rated governmental responses to climate change negatively. And it was really digging into what are the links between the perception of government action and then the feelings or reassurance that those children were feeling. I think part of us sharing it on this podcast is also about considering and starting to think about what treatment is available and what can our health partners do about this issue. With eco-anxiety or climate anxiety, it's something that's on the rise. Between 2009 and 2020, the proportion of Americans who said that they had personally experienced the effects of global warming increased from 32 to 42%. And the American Psychiatric Association does recognize that climate change is a threat and a growing threat to mental health, but mental health professionals in this field don't know how to handle the growing number of people that are anxious or grieving over the state of the planet. I think this is where we have a significant shift in what's expected of our healthcare professionals. Perhaps they did their training in the 90s when this wasn't a topic. And there are therapists in a few very specific subspecialities like ecotherapy that do have the training and the capabilities to help with eco-anxiety. But 
I think the vast proportion of therapists aren't trained specifically in this space. So the challenge here is for health providers, they need to start considering investing in the appropriate training for their healthcare professionals. How can we equip our therapists with the tools to to manage clients experiencing climate anxiety and this new angle on mental health? And then also, what is the government action that can take place? How can governments give their populations confidence that this is a topic that they are taking solid action on? I think it's clear that the impacts of climate change, whether we're looking at mental health or physical health, are here and present a very real existential threat. And I love that call to action for our governments, but I'm curious about our healthcare community and how they perhaps can get involved. Rosanna, how are we seeing the global healthcare community and industry react to these impacts of climate change? What strategies are they developing and what tactics are they using to try to combat the impacts? The first thing that we need to take notice of is that there's wide recognition of the magnitude of this problem. So the World Health Organization issued a global call to action to create resilient and sustainable health systems. There was a roundtable earlier this year where the World Health Organization Director General, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, said that the most pressing reasons for urgent climate action are the impacts not in the future, but right now on health. He actually continued to say that the climate crisis is a health crisis and it's threatening to overwhelm our health and workforce and health infrastructure. So the health community are really recognizing that the convergence between climate change and health is something that we not only now need to recognize and take notice of, but take significant action on. And as both a contributor to climate change, and then, as we've discussed extensively, a responder to its impacts, I think the healthcare industry has a really unique opportunity to be a leader in this climate space. And as the complex relationship between both our human health and climate change is becoming more pronounced, how can all of those different parts of the ecosystem, the medical profession and the researchers, the life sciences organizations, and then the providers and the healthcare systems, how can they all respond together? Exposing these issues and connecting it to healthcare to me is part of the stage of elevating something. And, you know, if you think about the three or four stages of something this large, it's the idea of awareness and making sure that the right stakeholders are exposed to this issue, creating interest around it, and then prioritizing it where you really actually put it into things like pathways and strategic plans, and then you take action on it. And I think we're actually in stage one or stage two. And I think continuing to talk about it and bringing it to the forefront is really important. I think we need to move into that stage three, though, as we talk through this. It's clear to me, right, that there's no time like the present to really start to try to move the needle when it comes to rolling back some of the impacts here of climate change. So I'm curious, Ali, when we think about taking action, what are some good first steps that we can see, particularly for the healthcare industry? Jen, I think that's a, a big and challenging question and something that we've been thinking about here at Vynamic and a multi-pronged approach is required into kind of wiring health into all of our decision-making and policy-making and system-building when it comes to climate change. Some of the strategies to mitigate risk and build resiliency is really focused on three interrelated buckets. So we've got 
mitigation, we've then got resiliency, and we've got innovation. And these are looking at a health system-wide level. What can we do to deal with climate change? So on the mitigation front, this is really about how can health systems, life sciences companies take responsibility for their emissions and start to reduce them? How as an organization can you help minimize your impact to the root causes by reducing your greenhouse gas emissions and using renewable energy, for example? We've then got resiliency and how can you improve as an organization or a system to help prepare for some of these changes we're seeing and some of these extreme events that we reference. Third of all, you've then got innovation. So how can organizations start to pioneer either new products or new services or even new models of care that are going to meet the future healthcare needs of their populations? And we're already seeing examples of these and investment in these three areas. So with mitigation, AstraZeneca actually recently pledged to be net zero by 2025. With resiliency, we've got the European health systems being prepared for heat waves now and in the future. And then with innovation, as we talked about earlier, Ollie, that new centre for vaccine development in the UK. I love the idea of this three-pronged approach. I think it really recognizes where we are at this point in time when it comes to climate change and the impact not only on the health of our planet, but the health of our population as well in terms of looking at how do we prevent future harm? How do we prepare for imminent impact that we know? And how do we get ahead and see where are there opportunities to think differently about the problems that climate change could have on health and healthcare going forward. Thank you so much, Ryan, Rosanna, and Ali for joining us today to have such an important conversation. I'm hopeful that our industry and our governments will find a way to address what you mentioned is the greatest challenge to our global and population health in the 21st century. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.